Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards, episode 64, The Jealous Servant. The last time we stopped was the death of Pope Joseph, where his 19-year reign saw the beginning of a period of rapid Islamization of Egypt, after the failure of the Bashmorites. Now, in the last episode, we saw how Joseph played his part in that transformation. But as I hinted to, it was really big events beyond Joseph's control, and in reality, Regardless of what he did or did not do, the rapid Islamization would have taken place anyway. You see, right in the middle of his reign, Al-Mu'tasim, the caliph that established the Turkish slaves as the army of the caliphate, died, and his son Al-Wasik took over. On the whole, the men and the ideology that guided the caliphate stayed more or less the same between father and son. Christians and Jews were tolerated, the caliph was the law, and he kept the zealous Islamic scholars and judges under control. When things got bad, it was economic exploitation and oppression, with religion or ethnic differences playing a minor role. Now so, a couple of years before Joseph died, we get a significant ideological turnover with the death of Al-Wasik and the ascension of Al-Mutawakkil, the younger son of Al-Mu'tasim and the half-brother of Al-Wasik. When he became caliph, he basically cleaned house and upended his father's regime. The leading Turkish general was assassinated and many of the leading civil administrators were removed and executed. Remember the corrupt judge from last episode who removed Joseph? Well, he was arrested and imprisoned in this juncture. We even get a change of their religious policy. Where before the Shias Ali was a righteous imam, according to the official caliphal policy, and the caliph jailed that well whoever disagreed with his very tight religious line, and mutawakkil ordered that Ali be cursed and instead elevated what we can call now the Sunni scholars, a zealous group of men who looked to the days of Medina and Mecca as the golden age of the caliphate and so the hadith and the traditions above the caliph. 
This happened because Al-Mutawakkal realized that the Turkish soldiers and their circle of influence were becoming too strong, and he attempted to counterbalance their influence and remove the structures that his father had built to support them. To do that, he appealed to the Islamic scholars around him, which meant, in addition to the cursing of Ali stuff, a whole slew of restrictions and Christians and Jews came to be. I'll get to the details in Egypt in a bit. But in a big caliphate, those Muslim scholars were developing an ideology to deal with the non-Muslims who were now a significant minority living among a truly Muslim land. Something called Dimitude. To avoid getting into a massive rabbit hole at this point of what is Dimitude and how it played out, I'm going to directly quote a Muslim historian who was a child or a teenager when the decrees came out, Al-Tabari, an eyewitness. We will eventually explore Dimitude, maybe have a special episode on it, but it's not fully mature yet as an ideology. So for now, I will just relay the basic facts on what Al-Mutawakkil and his scholars wanted to do. Al-Tabari wrote that the Caliph, quote, ordered that the Christians and all the rest of the people of Al-Dimma be made to wear honey-colored hoods and special belts. They were to ride in saddles with wooden stirrups, and two bowls were to be attached to the rear of their saddles. Then he goes on with farther, very specific dress codes for them and for any slaves that they owned. Quote, Whomsoever of them wears a turban, its color was likewise to be honey-colored. If any of their women went out veiled, they had to be enveloped in a honey-colored large wrap. Finally, for the most problematic part, quote, he gave orders that any of their houses of worship built after the advent of Islam were to be destroyed and one-tenth of their homes be confiscated. If the place was spacious enough, it was to be converted into a mosque. If it was not suitable for a mosque, it was to be made an open space. He commanded that wooden images of devils be nailed on the doors of their homes to distinguish them from the homes of Muslims. He forbade them from being employed in the government offices or any official business whereby they might have authority over Muslims. He prohibited their children from studying in Muslim schools, nor was any Muslim permitted to teach them. He forbade them to display crosses on their Palm Sundays, and he prohibited any Jewish chanting in the streets. He gave orders that their graves should be made level with the ground, as not to resemble the graves of Muslims. And he wrote to all his governors regarding this. In essence, Al-Mutawakkil decreed that Christians and Jews are to be set apart from the larger population, to be othered. And this is all in addition to the special tax obligation, the jizya. 
it was to be made clear that they are different and inferior to the Muslim population of the Caliphate. Now, to be clear, the enforcement of these decrees was always spotty, especially as you moved away from the larger cities and into the farming villages. But that wasn't really the point. The point was to always have the threat of enforcement present, to understand and accept your place in a community as an other. And while at the time these laws was just caliphal decrees, orders that could be modified, changed, or ignored in the future, to justify them, the scholars started pulling hadiths, and famously, something called the Back to Omar, as in the third caliph and the caliph who conquered Jerusalem. In this pact, all these restrictions were attributed to the caliph as a part of a peace treaty with the Christians and Jews living in the caliphate lands, which by time turned them from just another caliphal decree crafted by a group of overzealous judges to an untouchable part of a divine law. For future generations, it was not some obscure caliph who came up with these restrictions. It was the caliph Omar himself, based upon the teaching of the Prophet. Consider this. When a terrorist group, ISIS, took control of Mosul in 2014, it was exactly that pact of Omar that they offered to the non-Muslim population of the city. Not surprisingly, most decided to leave. The historical consensus seems to be that the document is basically made up by these overzealous judges, either at the time of al-Mutawakkil or shortly after. But there is also a school of opinion that it is based on a legitimate document from Omar II reign and either altered or expanded to fit the needs of al-Mutawakkil. And this is only, of course, in the academic circles of the West. But that's just a sneak peek of that rabbit hole. We will continue to talk more about it as it continues to mature. In Egypt, once Joseph died, his scribe and one of his deacons, Khalil or Michael, replaced him. He stayed on for a couple of years while Mutawakkil was very early in his reign and still consolidating his power. He died in 851 before seeing the changes of the religious policies. Following Khalil's short reign, a certain cosmos was elected, and it is he who had to deal with the full brunt of al-Mutawakkil decrees. And really, even before they came out, Cosmos was already on shaky grounds with the Muslim administration. Following his ordination, a huge crowd of Christians gathered for the Feast of St. Mina, near Alexandria. And these crowds, probably just from the tensions that come with these things, broke into a major fight where at least one person died. It sounds like they were just fighting among themselves, but from the reaction of the governor, the garrison may have gotten involved in some way in at least trying to establish the peace. So, 
It ended up being a mob riot of sorts, resembling the old days of Alexandria. After the riot, the governor imprisoned the Pope and demanded a large sum of money for his release. The standard procedure by now. Cosmas paid the sum, but still, he was ordered not to leave Alexandria. Which really makes me think that the governor was concerned about the crowd's threat, and it was not necessarily about the person dying, or even the money. At any rate, two Christian tax administrators from Fustat intervened, and got the patriarch out of Alexandria, and essentially ran the church on his behalf, at least its finances and relationship with the government. Under the pretext of making him pay the taxes owed in person, they forced the governor in Alexandria to let him go to Fustat. There, they proposed to the patriarch that he relocate to a sleepy Christian village east of Fustat, called the Myra, and let them handle the worldly affairs of the church, while he concentrated on the spiritual welfare of his subjects. Cosmas, by all accounts, was happy to take the deal, especially after his ordeal with the governor of Alexandria. The two secretaries paid the tax owed on the church, administered its holding, and paid the clergy, while Cosmas prayed the liturgy, met with the bishops and monks, and maintained the relationship with Antioch. A fruitful partnership that kept the peace until the religious decrees finally hit Egypt and the secretaries lost their job. To enforce those decrees in Egypt, we get a really curious individual, a governor given the fascinating name of Al-Ghayr Abdel Masih by the Christian sources. This guy literally was named the jealous servant of Christ. He was not a Christian, sir. No, he was the guy sent to subvert him. So, he's either a convert from the East who was too eager to prove the sincerity of his conversion by zealously executing the Caliph's orders, and our sources chose to use his old name, or because he ended up a venerated figure later on in the Egyptian elite circles, his real name was edited out to avoid offending his admirers, and the editors just chose to give him a silly name. The guy's name in the Muslim sources was Ambassa ibn Isha al-Dabbi. Al-Kindi, the Muslim historian addressing his reign, remembers him in a very positive light as the last Arabic governor of the province, truly faithful to the caliph before the Turks took over. Not to mention, Al-Kindi goes out of his way to portray him as a biased governor who is the last to lead his subjects in prayer. Which is really mind-blowing, as the history of the patriarch's author remembers the same exact facts, but with a whole different perspective. Quote, This man pretended before the Muslims to perform the commandments of the law, which, however, he did hypocritically, so they could say we have not seen anyone 
who has come to Egypt and fulfilled the commandments of the religion of Islam as this one. Sincere or not, the guy showed up in Egypt with explicit orders to humiliate and exclude the Copts from the governor and was given wide powers over the military, tax collection, and religious authority from the Caliph. Which is indicative of how much al-Mutawakkil cared about enforcing his decrees. And the jealous servant of Christ was a very jealous servant of the Caliph. As the Caliph ordered, public display of crosses were banned. Funerals where Christians prayed publicly were prohibited. Position of wine became illegal, which automatically made celebrating liturgies illegal. Naturally, the Christian civil servants were fired, including the powerful tax officials that were taking care of the church. And as the Caliph decree stated, Christians were made to wear special clothes, and pictures of devils were nailed to their houses. Now, did the central government have the ability to enforce these kinds of decrees all over Egypt and in every little village and town? Probably not. So this mostly hit the major urban centers of Egypt, where the government apparatus was present. Outside the cities, the enforcement was very spotty, and basically functioned as a mechanism to put, quote-unquote, troublemakers in their place. This state of high intentions and al dobby governorship lasted four years, from 852 to 856 AD, during which the Byzantines attacked the coastal cities in Egypt with serious raids, which at first made things worse as forced labor was employed on a large scale to build up the Egyptian navy and fortify these cities. But when the extent of the raids reached out to the caliph, he ended up removing the governor and appointing a Turkish general instead. Apparently, the Byzantine managed to occupy Damietta, which by now had overtook Alexandria as the principal port of Egypt, for three straight days, and could have stayed longer if they wanted to. The Turkish general, when he came over, either out of practical consideration to not completely alienate a significant minority of Egypt's population when a foreign enemy is threatening the coasts, or just out of plain indifference, he did not enforce the decrees and returned things to normal, which is to say, oppressively high taxes which the elite and the civil administrators found ways to avoid. And to his credit, with the threat of the Byzantines, a major building program went toward those coastal cities, including Alexandria. The city have been neglected and abused for so long that the canals that connected it to the Nile and made it a two-way shipping port dried up. And it was at this point that they were redug and the city defenses were rebuilt, which, as a byproduct, helped with dealing with the lawless Bedouin tribes nearby. And in case if you're wondering what was those Byzantine raids are all about, well, it was basically a large operations to cut the supply line 
to the Emirate of Crete, which was a major headache for the Byzantines. They had no intentions to take Egypt or threaten Muslim rule there. They just wanted to starve out the island of Crete. And as usual with these things, as a result of the raids, 600 mostly Coptic women ended up being enslaved by the Romans. So it's not like anybody cheered them on. Back in Fostat, the two Coptic tax officials returned to their jobs as well. Also, one of them died pretty quickly after. And it's not really clear if they ever stopped taking care of the church administration. But at any rate, the storm have passed by 856, after initiating another wave of conversions. This time, not from bull farmers looking for economic relief, but from elite civil officials looking to keep their position and prestige. Cosmas, the patriarch, shortly after surviving those edicts, got a fever and died after eight years as the patriarch of Alexandria, mostly spent in quiet obscurity. After his death, there was a period of intense discussions among the bishops and the Coptic lay elite, which were becoming powerful now as the men who ran the day-to-day -day civil administration. Both groups could not come in an agreement and one candidate. Further, the process of meetings and negotiations were entirely done in Fustat. The Alexandrians, if they wanted to say on who will be their bishop, they had to go there and be part of the process. As expected, as time wore on, the powerful civil administrators eventually took the lead in the discussions. The chief of these men was a certain Abraham, who managed the financial holdings of the monasteries during the reign of Cosmos. He had an eye on a certain Shinuda, an energetic and an able administrator who was the abbot of the largest monastery in Egypt by this point, the monastery of St. Macarius, which is still around to this day. It had become the largest and the most vibrant, mostly due to his abilities and piety. So Abraham lobbied hard to make him the patriarch. Efforts that finally came to fruition in January 859, after a two-months deliberation period. Shinuda was then asked to come to Fustat to take part of who should be ordained. There, he walked into the church where the crowd cheered and he found out that it was he who was to be ordained. It felt like it's a new age and after a rocky couple of years, it really ended up being a new age for the patriarchy in Egypt. Shinoda would witness the rebirth of Egypt as a de facto independent state, separate from the larger caliphate and all but name. So rather than being some obscure bishop in a distant corner of the caliphate, he would tangle with the most powerful man in the region, and on the whole, will do pretty good. Abraham have picked the right guy, and Shinoda managed a very tricky transition period 
in a brilliant way. The first thing that Shenouda did was to put a firm theological formula and ensure conformity to it all over Egypt. As I talked about before, after the patriarchy of James, and really it's true now, the educational state of the church was at a low ebb, non-existent if we were to be honest. Nothing new was written, not much was read, and simony or the buying of the church offices was rampant. Shunoda's theological formula was simple and easily grasped by the masses, but put a very firm line between Christianity and Islam, which were becoming not that much different on the ground level of simple farmers who did not read or write. The formula was, quote, The salvation of everyone is through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our God in truth. Basically, Jesus is God and you cannot be saved without him. Now, you would think that this is super basic, and looking back at the heyday of the Christological formulas, it would be something that didn't really need to be enforced. But it's a completely different world now. There was a literally a whole village of Christians who believed that, quote, the Lord did not accept the sufferings in the flesh, but they were as a dream. A really close idea to the Sunni mainstream beliefs about the person of Jesus, that he was not crucified, but it only appeared to be so. So, Shnuda had lots of work to do. Coupled with the theological formula was a pastoral trip going through the whole land of Egypt, all the way from Alexandria to the monasteries in Upper Egypt. He checked on his people in person and fixed as much as he could. That's where he found out about this village and ordained a priest for them who knew his stuff. Fixing other problems was not easy so, and the lack of basic knowledge of Christians' beliefs reached all the way up to the bishops. A group of them in Upper Egypt were preaching that the divinity of Jesus died on the cross. He, diplomatically, but very firmly, brought them back to the traditional Miaphysite orthodoxy. Early in his reign, he brought those bishops to the monastery of St. Macarius, and on an Easter Sunday, made them confess publicly that they have erred, and that they are now seeking forgiveness. In addition, Shinuda made the practice of buying clerical office explicitly forbidden, and he enforced it whenever he went. Now, of course not everybody was happy about the patriarch firm hand, and two bishops murmured loudly their dissatisfaction. But almost immediately, in a very obscure circumstances, they died. Quote, Vengeance befell them, and they died an evil and a bitter death at Banna, which was known to everyone, even before they reached their diocese. Unfortunately for us, what was known back then is not known now. So who knows what happened. Once Shinoda finished his trip, he settled in Alexandria, 
and took advantage of the building program initiated by the Turkish governor to build an infrastructure to bring the Nile water to the poor section of the city, as well as an underground sewage system for them. Now, fresh water and sewage in the medieval world were really a big deal. It meant that a cholera outbreak that usually wipes off half the city is now a manageable seasonal problem. Building these kind of projects became his specialty, and after Alexandria, Shunoda started to expand to the village around it. All this work quickly earned him the nickname Shunoda the Steward. And that's where we're going to leave Shunoda, on a high note. Next time, we will witness the end of the caliphate rule in Egypt and the rise of an independent Turkish dynasty. And with that will come another violent transition, a major rebellion, and a little something called the Zingi Rebellion, the first known racial slave rebellion ever. Kind of like the caliphate version of the Haitian Revolution. And it's pretty fascinating. Now, before we go, I just wanted to do a quick note on the naming conventions that I will be using. Basically, so far, I had been using the anglicized names of folks, which was usually close enough to the Greek-slash-Coptic versions of their names. So, if you heard me say Bob Cyril, and Google it to find out more information, you'll find what you're looking for. Even so, his name in Greek and Coptic is Korolos. But after the reign of Joseph, where Arabic was being used inside the churches, the name of the patriarchs, as they heard it and used it, was Arabic. So, Joseph from last week's episode was really Yusab. And if you want to find out more about him, you will probably have better results searching for Yusab than Joseph. His replacement, who we just talked about, his anglicized name is Michael. But most historical sources do not call him that. They call him by his Arabic name, Khalil. So, for the sake of consistency with the sources, from now on, we would be calling folks by their Arabic names, which can be dramatically different from their names in English. Just in case, if you are wondering why the names are getting weirder. Thank you for listening. Farewell, and until next time. Mm-hmm.